Uh, scale of 1 to 10, how's your attitude this week? Math is not your strong suit, Parkson. Scale of 1 to 10. Fantastic. You're, you're a verbal communicator. Okay, eight, 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 all right. I like it. Nice to see you all, most of you. Um, appreciate you being here. Uh, lots of stuff going on uh, in the world, lots of swirling uh, threats and discouragements out there. And uh, I was thinking this morning as I was listening to the band play that I am just um, always and increasingly thankful for the relatively small number of people who kind of carry the weight of the church for the rest of us, you know, and kind of keep this thing going and provide the tabernacle and the meetings and all that stuff. And, um, you know, because uh, that sort of thing does not come without sacrifice. And, and uh, so I just appreciate them. Uh, don't tell them, because they get unruly, uh, unless I am sarcastic and acerbic. Um, uh, I'm glad you're doing well, uh, most of you. Um, I had, I don't know, it's kind of a heavy week. It's a heavy-hearted week. There's just a lot going on in the world uh, that, uh, that made me sad, um, independent of, uh, you know, struggles in my own life and household. And um, uh, I... Uh, I was thinking about grace because we're doing this sermon series uh, on grace, you know. And uh, being a history buff, uh, I was reflecting on some of the great national leaders we've had in, in the past, you know. And uh, one of my great heroes is Abraham Lincoln. Any Lincoln buffs out there? I don't know how many biographies I've written about him. But I was thinking about the, the second inaugural address that he gave, which is a, a famous speech in my opinion, probably the greatest Washington speech uh, in, in U.S. history. Um, but it came at the end of his first term, just as the Civil War was ending. It's like people understood that it was going to be over pretty soon, that the South had lost, and it had been a horrific experience. Half a million people dead, over half a million people dead, which would be like over five million people dead if it happened today, proportionally speaking. So just a devastation, just a devastation. And he gives this speech at the beginning of his second inaugural address. Footnote, do you know that Abraham Lincoln had a prophetic dream about his own death, his own assassination? Do you know this? He had this dream his first term. Uh, he saw himself and then a pale shadow of himself. And he woke up, I think it was from a nap, and said uh, to this was his wife, I'm going to be killed my second term in office. I'm going to win a second term. <laughs> He's optimistic. And this was all recorded. He shared it with several people. He knew he was going to die. He, was gonna, he knew that he was going to die shortly after this. Uh, and here's some experts, excerpts from that speech, which, like all Lincoln's speeches, was very short. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. Uh, skipping down a little bit, he's talking about the two sides. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men would dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of another 
from other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, the prayers of both sides. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe to the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. That's a scripture verse if you didn't know. And then he ends it by saying, with malice toward none, and charity for all, and with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, carried this thing, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Imagine a national leader standing up today and giving that speech. What I love most about it, what I have loved about Lincoln for my entire life, is he never expressed it exactly like, well, maybe he did, but not so often. He understood grace in the midst of great evil and great destruction and great acrimony and accusation and, I mean, the very height of legalism, judgmentalism, and its destruction. And he said things like, uh, you know, it may seem weird that some people live off of enslaving other folks, but judge not lest ye be judged. You know, could you imagine somebody saying that today? Today it's all about outrage, right? You, d you develop your political base by getting outraged at the other side, right? That's, what, that's where we are today. And that's what I mean when I say that grace has been sucked out of the atmosphere. And Lincoln, who was not a churchgoer, by the way, and was often criticized as a non-believer, he was a non-believer at all. Um, he understood that, that grace was the only way through it. He understood the, the, the South was losing. He gave this speech basically to the South with malice toward none and charity for all. That's the generosity side. And with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. That's the truth side. Right? He did both. You know, he did both. And I just wish he had survived uh, because I think the post-war era would have gone a lot better. Uh, but as it was, you know, at least got us to the next level uh, as a country. You know what else I was thinking? Philemon. You know what Philemon is about? Anybody? I know Parkson does. <laughs> Philemon is about an escaped slave. This guy Onesimus. Uh, he, was, he became a Christian. He was owned, enslaved, it was a little different back then, but uh, by a slave master named Philemon. And Onesimus ran to Paul, who incidentally at that time was in prison in chains for preaching the gospel and hung out with Paul for a while. And Paul says, all right, Onesimus, now that you've become a great Christian disciple, I'm going to send you back uh, to enslavement. And then he sends this letter with Onesimus uh, to Philemon and says, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sending this guy back to you. He's a Christian now. <laughs> Maybe you want to reconsider your arrangement. But, but he says it like this. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, order you to free Onesimus, 
yet I appeal to you on the basis of love to free him. Uh, you know, he could have gone with right, legalism, rules, harsh, good morality, but instead he makes this appeal based on generosity. Grace, you know, was that a good thing for him to do? Or should he have been outraged at the unjust institution of slavery? I mean, I mean, you could argue either side, couldn't you? You could argue either side, but somehow grace, you know, that unique and inherently offensive quality. Anyway, I haven't even started the sermon yet. That's sort of what I'm thinking about. It's like, man, I just, I'm so hungry for grace right now. I'm just so hungry for grace. <sighs> Maybe you are as well. There are song sheets on my... No grace. There are plenty of big evils in the world right now, right? There's this little thing going on between Russia and Ukraine. Thousands of people killed and displaced uh, because of that. Um, I was reading this week about a COVID policy in North Korea. Uh, COVID, up until recently, has claimed zero COVID cases. Um, but it turns out that uh, they've been like imprisoning people suspected of having COVID or outright executing them and uh, barricading them in their homes or apartment buildings. Uh, but because their distribution system sucks there, they starve <laughs> uh, because they're barricaded in, you know, and so who knows how many tens of thousands of people have died. Uh, maybe you're following the news in China. There's some fairly draconian anti-COVID measures happening, particularly around Shanghai. And we had some people from Shanghai in the church that will be an object of prayer, I think, in the upcoming 24-hour prayer because, you know, um, uh, it's been pretty rough. Uh, maybe you're following that story. Uh, abortion has been much in the news because of the leaked uh, Supreme Court decision that will turn back Roe versus Wade and send the question of abortion to the states. Uh, so you're supposed to discuss it reasonably with people closer to you. Let's pray that that happens. Um, which is to say, I pray for reasonable and calm and loving discussions uh, rather than just more and more acrimony. Um, but there's been massive protests uh, about that and um, judges being... Uh, cornered in their own homes, uh, the crowds who are trying to intimidate them into making a different decision, um, fire bombings of Christian counseling centers, um, which you might not know about depending on which news feed you read. Um, and then, uh, so over the weekend, we had a mass shooting in Buffalo. Uh, uh, some guy opened fire in a supermarket and killed 10 people, um, most of them uh, black, is apparently um, a, a racially motivated uh, shooting, hate crime. Just wounds wherever you look, you know, and opportunity to be outraged wherever you look, you know. And it's in that context I want to talk about grace again today in our sermon series at Grace because uh, I want you to understand that even I, Christian superhero that I am, I'm 
tempted to be angry, you know. It's like, you're wrong, I'm right, they're wrong, they're right. Um, and just uh, live life on, on that basis. All right, so let's do a warm-up. We talked about grace last week. Uh, remind me, what's the definition of grace? Truth, truth plus generosity, right? It's like they, they go together. It can be unmerited favor or something like that. But to be grace, it has to be both true and generous, both generous and true. I love the way that Lincoln said it uh, at the end of, the, of his second inaugural uh, address, you know malice toward none, charity for all. Everybody gets forgiven, everybody gets love with firmness in the right as God has uh, given us to see the right. So as best as we understand truth, we're going to hold on to it. We're not going to be cowardly about that. On the other hand, we're going to be very generous and charitable and loving, you know. So those two things together. And what happens is that people tend to embrace one side or the other, but not both. And it's like two wings on a bird. If you just do one wing, you can't fly. If you do two wings, then you can soar to heaven. Um, and that's, that's the tension in, in, in grace. If you remove just the one, you get destruction. If you remove, remove truth and you're just generous and, hey, whatever, whatever and ever, then you get licentiousness and moral chaos and destruction from that. If, on the other hand, you're just truth, rules, morality, law, then you get legalism and judgment and fear and, and um, dictatorship, you know, and, and that doesn't go well at all. Uh, if you do grace well, then you get a couple of things. You get one of the things that grace gives us is freedom to try. We can try. We can just try on faith. We can risk things because we don't have to succeed all the time if, the, if we're in an atmosphere of grace because failure does not equal condemnation in an atmosphere of grace. Imperfection does not equal judgment in an atmosphere of grace. So we get to try, and faith is trying. We say that around blue water. So grace makes faith thrive. I love that about grace. It also gives you the freedom to repent. So if you've made a mistake, and you're in an atmosphere of, let's say, judgmentalism, you won't admit the mistake, right? Because you'll just get condemned. You'll get stained. There's no recovery from something. like You have to hide it. You have to start manipulating the truth, playing with the truth, you know, uh, covering it over. But if you're in an atmosphere uh, of grace and you make a mistake, you're like, ah, nobody's perfect, and the people around you are like, yeah, least of all me, so I don't try again, <laughs> you know. It's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to forgive you. Uh, we're going to get on with it. Come on, we'll do this together. And it feels really different, and repentance is super, super easy in that kind of atmosphere. The opposite of grace is what? Yeah, last week I argued that the opposite of grace was control. Uh, more technically, it depends on which wing of grace you're looking at. What's the opposite of generosity? Well, it would be, I don't know, judgmentalism, legalism, finger wagging, something like that. So that's the grace wing. But what's the opposite of the truth wing? Well, lies, manipulation of truth, false truths, um, you know, religious truths, you know, Phariseeism. Uh, fakery, stuff like that. And, but both of those things are about control, right? Because if I pretend there's no such thing as truth, there's no such thing as morality, what I'm trying to do is control your perception of me and get you out of my life. I'm trying to control the atmosphere that way. If, on the other hand, you know, I'm very rule-based and dictating how you have to live, well, that's a form of control. So that's why I say the opposite of grace is control. The 
corollary being that if you're really into grace, it means that you have to not be controlling. Right? You have to give people a lot of latitude. Right? And that's hard for us because we want things to be a certain way. We want people to do what we want people to do. You know, our perspective is the best perspective, obviously. Right? All right, so that, that's kind of a review of what we did uh, last week. And today I want to example, I want to examine like one wing of that. Like what happens if you're not in an atmosphere of grace, but instead you're in an atmosphere uh, in which people are not willing to be generous? Right? So you're in an atmosphere of judgmentalism or an atmosphere of finger-wagging or in an atmosphere of outrage as the case might be in society today. So I want to look at that side of it. How do you be a grace-paced person in an atmosphere of outrage and judgment? Follow me? And then next week we'll talk about how to be a grace-based person in an atmosphere of licentiousness when people pretend there is no truth. All right? Got it? Following? Snap your fingers. If you can't snap your fingers, oh, slap the person next to you because we're all in grace. So I'm going to talk about applying grace in a, in a judgmental uh, atmosphere. Uh, just, just in case you don't know, you know, with respect to judgmental atmospheres, Jesus was really against them. Uh, probably his, his most famous uh, comment on judgmentalism comes from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 7, uh, greatest moral teaching in the history of humankind, probably. And this begins the home stretch of that sermon. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. All right, so that's a threat. <laughs> you know, he doesn't do that a lot, but do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Therefore, use a very generous measure, obviously, right? Because I want to skate by. And so I'm going to let you guys skate by, you know, and you guys stink. So the more I let you skate, the better off I get. I like that. You follow my logic. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? One of the great visuals of scripture. I love that. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Like moral inventory starts at home. You know, don't pretend that you're all that. Don't pretend that you're qualified to judge. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Do you guys understand that part? Or is that part weird? A little bit weird. I think what he's saying there, he does all, he's saying all these things about you don't judge. If you do judge, you better be freaky generous uh, because... Uh, you want God to judge you with freaky generosity. You know, don't be self-righteous at all. Um, you know, think about it this way. You have a plank in your own eyes, so you're not seeing things very clearly. Go through life assuming that you're not seeing things very clearly. 
which is actually kind of a helpful moral principle, I think. So be very, very humble with the way that you apply moral rules or your outrage. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. That's kind of like saying, appreciate your audience. So let's say that I'm morally perfect. Let's, I mean, imagine I'm morally perfect, uh, and I'm going to drop a nugget of wisdom on you guys. But I know my crowd, and if I drop a pure insight on you, a pure nugget of wisdom, and you have the brain of a dog or a brain of a pig, dogs had a very bad reputation back then. We love them now, but like rats, you know, more like rats back in the day, um, you won't know what to do with it. And it will come across badly as a result. You know? And then you'll get mad at me. And then I will create an atmosphere of outrage when what I wanted to create was an atmosphere of grace. So like, appreciate that nobody is all that. That people come from different places. right? And even if you think you're moral superior, and clearly I'm not. Clearly I'm not. The chief of sinners, as Paul referred to himself at the end of his ministry. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to be, I don't want to be uh, demanding purity or, you know, practicing your righteousness before men, as Jesus put it, in a different interaction with the religious authorities of his day, because that does not generate an atmosphere of grace. That generates an atmosphere of argument and hostility. So be careful with that. Pretty good advice, I think, all in all. Uh, he, he lived in a very politically uproarious time, as do we. His was worse. Um, so, um, you know, great teaching. Judgment, uh, bad. And he gives some uh, really good advice about how to avoid creating judgmental uh, atmospheres. Uh, but if you're in a judgmental atmosphere, what should you do? That's the question for today. And I want to take a look at another uh, verse, uh, section of verses from Matthew, Matthew 19. You can turn there in your Bibles, flip there on your smartphone, or if you're um, casual, just read it on the big board behind me. Just nine verses from Matthew, and this is about divorce. Not my favorite subject, um, but one that I think we find culturally acceptable. 34% of evangelical Christians experience divorce after they become Christians which is much less than the national average, right? So actually Christians do better at staying married, but it's something that all of us have experience with, if not directly in our family, someone we know. And we also have this idea that God hates divorce. That's actually a scripture from Malachi 2.16. God hates divorce and also him who covers his garments with violence. This the prophet Malachi said. So he equates divorce, God equates divorce with violence, with, with splattering blood uh, over something. Serious, right? God hates divorce. Um, but, little known fact, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 24, uh, God, through Moses, gave his people rules for how to divorce well using certificates of divorce and stuff like that. So it's this very interesting moral situation. God hates divorce. He equates it with violence. But he also makes provision for getting divorce. This was a really hot-button topic in Jesus' day. Uh, it was like 
It's a little bit like homosexuality or transgenderism or something like that, uh, but, but with more oomph behind it because uh, Herod, who was kind of a Jewish leader of Jesus' day, married his brother's wife by force, sort of forcing them to get divorced. And that became kind of, well, like, that seems like a pretty licentious use of divorce right there and also creepy. Um, and, and Herod had cycled through a number of wives at that point. So it was very Hollywood, right? Marriage is not lasting very long among the elite and a lot of sexual licentiousness and pretty easy. And John the Baptist spoke up against it, right? He was, he was doing a repentance revival at the Jordan River and he made commentary about Herod's divorce slash marriage and how people abuse divorce. And that's why he got decapitated. That's why Herod's family had him killed, because of his views on divorce. And then the Pharisees, the, the religious experts, show up one day to ask Jesus about divorce. You see where this is going, right? When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, where John was ministering previously. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there, doing miracles, full-on kingdom stuff. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So what's the answer? For any reason? I mean, that seems a bit extreme. Um, they expect Jesus to say no. And then they expect him to get decapitated. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So that's the principle. That's why marriage is sacred. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why then do we have rules that say we can divorce? Aha, we got you, you country bumpkin. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. I love how he makes it personal. <laughs> he switches to you. <laughs> Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And that's the end of that. It's an interesting statement. Essentially what he's saying is like, oh, God does hate divorce. And it was not the plan, right? It's man, woman, together, forever, one unity. Everything is supposed to flow from that. That's the ideal. Then why does God allow less than ideal? Because your hearts are hard, right? Because you can't keep the ideal. And you imagine, you've seen marriages where you, like, they're tearing each other apart or they're tearing the kids apart or it's just damage upon damage upon damage, right? And it gets to be hellish. And you look at that and maybe you think, it might be time for mercy, right? A little mercy there. It's like, like it's okay. We can tolerate less than ideal. Let's just separate you guys. It's not going to be good, but at least you won't die. Right? It's not going to be good, but at least you get to start over and try again because you can't fight your way out of this, apparently. So there's mercy, there's generosity in the midst of it. I love the way that Jesus gives the answer. 
Right? He says, oh, no, no, there is only one right. But since you can't keep it, God's willing to deal with you where you are. Generosity. Truth and generosity. Truth and generosity. And that was a political issue that could have got him killed. Right? So good at grace. And Jesus was all grace all the time. He was never not grace. No matter how outrageous the political issue. Right? John the Baptist was his cousin. Jesus sort of stood up, stood up on a stump and just gone off about divorce. That's what he should have done. Because the divorce policy of the regime was killing people, literally. Plus, it was destroying families and you know, all the other stuff that divorce does. Those statistics are very well known. It's not good. It's not good. It's terrible. Terrible effects. The only question is, is it better than the alternative? In mercy, in grace, in generosity. So, you know, it exists. Don't abuse it. And that's what was happening. People were abusing it. Even the Pharisees were abusing it. It's like, oh, you burned my toast? You're out, lady. I will marry a younger one. Not because she's younger, but because you have been displeasing to me. You know, that's how it was being used. It's just so offensive, particularly in a patriarchal culture. You know, so offensive. So it got abused. I think a little bit about the abortion debate. Can I comment on that today? Uh, because I'm old enough to remember Roe versus Wade in, in the 70s. And uh, it was a mercy argument. It's like, you know, abortions are terrible because, you know, we don't want unborn children to be, you know, terminated willy-nilly. That would be terrible, but it needs to be safe, legal, and rare. Remember that slogan, those of you who are old, like me? But it has, it has migrated... Uh, to, um, we're, all, we're one of seven countries on earth that allows late-term abortion, like up to nine months. You know, in many states you can abort your child, you can live birth abortions and stuff like that. So it kind of drifted. And like somewhere in there, <laughs> right, all pretension about mercy got lost and it instead became a right. Right? It's like, it's hard, it's hard to really hold on to the generosity portion of the policy. Yeah, the mother's life is in danger. And, you know, I mean, that was the discussion back in the 70s. But, but it's, it's not that anymore. And so I understand that people stand up against that in outrage. And like, no, this has gotten like, I'm, I was uncomfortable at the beginning. Now I'm just like totally freaked out. This is really nasty. Uh, and, but the debate has gotten less and less and less grace-based. Right? And now... You know, we're reaping the whirlwind uh, from, from that today. That was divorce in Jesus' day is what I'm saying. I don't want to you know, talk about the abortion issue. I'm just saying there is always an issue like this, right? It's the race issue in Lincoln's day, you know, the divorce issue in Jesus' day, maybe the abortion issue, depending. Um, there's always something like this. And as challenging as it may be for you, Find the grace way. Find the grace way. Otherwise, destruction. If it's a war that costs half a million lives, you know, it's, it's tragic, more social commentary, but um, one of the
the ironies of our current political culture that I think is tearing Christians apart is on the one hand, you have people who are very uh, sensitive about bigotry and racial injustice and stuff like that. Uh, that is an issue that has been more adopted by the political left, right? Just generally. And then you have people who are sensitive about the abortion issue, which has more been adopted by the political right. So abortion, if you think it's murder, kills probably between 600 and 7,000 people a year. And of course, you know, racial injustice causes uh, an array of destructions, right? So what does a Christian do, right? Where does a Christian stand? And if you're over here, these Christians call you a bigot. <laughs> and if you're over here, these Christians call you a murderer. Well, that's just Christians. That's just Christians, right? Who are not dominating the political discourse, by the way. Um, so somehow, like a path of grace, do not let go of the right as God sees you to see the right. Don't you dare let go of that, right? Just be firm in the right. I'm quoting Lincoln, not scripture, but he quoted scripture, right? Do not let go of that but try to find an expression of generosity in the midst of it, and that's super challenging. It's super unchallenging when policies are getting people killed around the world. That's super challenging. I get it, right? I get it. Here's the thing. I, sometimes grace is more art than science, the way that you apply it, because again, it's about lack of control. So it's not a laboratory artifact. It's a living, breathing thing. And so I can't tell you exactly what the grace-based response is in whatever situation you find yourself in. Today I've talked mostly about social or political situations because those are ones we all share, but in your own life, right, you have personal situations of outrage and hurt, right? You've all been treated unfairly and unjustly. You've all been abandoned, shamed. You've probably all been shamed over the last two years in addition to all the other things that are going on because people that you loved got mad at you because you were on the wrong side of something. I've never been shamed more in my life in the past 24 months. Um, plenty of people uh, who I would call friends, uh, you know, doing it because that's the atmosphere, right? So we all have personal wounds as well, is what I'm saying. Okay. So, I'm not just talking about the social things. Very personal things. And I can't tell you exactly what to do, but I can tell you that when you find a base of grace that is both true, firm in the right, and generous, then it will seem like a way forward. It will seem to offer everyone involved a way forward. Sometimes it will be more like a way out. But you get it? That's the character of it. And that's your charge as Christian brothers and sisters. That's your charge. That's what Jesus charged us with. Right? Don't judge. Can't do that. Can't. That will go very, very badly. All right? Is that, like a, is that a heavy sermon or is that like a happy sermon?
Yeah. That's the hill on which I will die. I will die on the hill of grace. Right? Uh, people demanding that I be outraged about something and me not being outraged about something. It's like there are real situations in the world today where that could get me killed. Uh, and I live in a very safe place. <laughs> um, but that's the hill. That's the hill to die on, in case you were wondering. And that is the hill that Jesus died on, literally. Right? And on Golgotha, on the cross, that was all about a way forward. That's what that was about. There is nothing more Christian than that. Nothing. It grieves my heart that so many Christians have abandoned the call of grace in the name of justice or in the name of protection. They've abandoned grace. It's not Christian. It's not Christian. A just and lasting peace is the way Lincoln put it. And he tied that to grace. Not just right. Not just freedom, but grace. All right? Enough said. I preached a lot today. I'm tired. Do you have personal situations if that touches, if that hits? So let's pray about those. Yeah? Father, I just pray for your spirit of grace in this room. Because we've all, we've all got need. Oh, you know, and all the issues touch us, Lord, in one way. But there's one or two that are hurting us particularly right now. Wherever things have uh, been unfair, unjust, murderous, The battle belongs to you, and uh, we pray for uh, a just and lasting peace in our own hearts, that we would be clean of judgment, that we ourselves would be clean of judgment. And I pray, Lord, for a creative problem-solving spirit in us, that we could see the path of grace and get to it, no matter what the world says about it. I'm just going to pause for 30 seconds as the Lord drops ideas into your own heads. All right, let's stand and dismiss, guys. Thank you for hanging. And uh, thank you for carrying the cause forward. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint us to be salt and light in a world, that you would anoint us to be carriers of a grace in a world that has utterly forgotten grace. Uh, may we uh, be brilliant, Lord, in this most Christian of all virtues. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen. Come say hello to me if you're brand new. The prayer team is going to come up here and stretch across the front. Come forward if you need prayer for healing or direction or just a little encouragement in the area of grace. See you next week.